Luke chapter 23, verse 26. I'm going to read through verse 38. We'll come back and we will discuss together. So, now as they led him away, speaking of Jesus, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two other criminals, two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the other, on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew that said, This is the king of the Jews. And so we finally made it to the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's this been culmination, this, this buildup, this lead. We know all the way from the beginning of Luke that it started off with, with his, his life, right, of being born. Um, you know, he was 33, year old, 33 years old when he was crucified, but didn't truly start the ministry or the buildup to this exact moment until he was 30 years old. So at 30 years old is when he started to call the disciples to follow him and train them and to do all these miracles. Everything that we read about in the Gospels is basically from the years of 30 to 33. And so here in 33, at 33 years old, is the culmination of Jesus' life here upon the cross. Everything he did, everything that has ever happened in history, everything that we read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all of that culminates to this point in history where Jesus is going to die on the cross, right? And what we understand as we read through this is that he ultimately lays down his life. He's in control. No one is taking his life. None of this is, is blindsiding him. He is doing this of his own accord. He wants this to happen. And we're going to see this transpire. We're going to see him say this as he says this, these fancy words here in verses 28 through 31 to the, to the women. But he's in complete control. It's what he wants to do. Why? Because what's, what's the ultimate thing that, that Christ receives from this? It's, it's us. It's our salvation, right? It's to bring us back to him because we are lost, dead, unrighteous, ungodly. And without this transpiring, without Jesus laying down his life and taking our place on the cross for our sins, we could not, be, we could not come back to him or be with him. And so this is all done because he loves us. And as we read through this, I'm going to read through, you know, how the, how the crucifixion happened, what it looks like. Obviously, words don't often do justice as much as visual. Um, I don't have a visual for you. I think one of the best visuals you can get in regards to the crucifixion is the Passion of the Christ. How many of you guys have seen that movie? The Passion of the Christ. Have you seen that movie with Jim Caviezel? Um, so in that movie, obviously, it's, it's Jesus and the gospel and him 
being you know, flogged and scourged and carrying his cross. You, you see everything transpire that the Gospels present to us. You see him on the cross. But they do a, a really good job of depicting a, what it could have looked like. Obviously, it's, it's a movie. Okay? These are actors. Um, this was made 2,000 years after Jesus was crucified. But it gives us visually a good understanding of how, what it looked like. And I think sometimes it's important to understand the severity of what Jesus went through physically to really understand how the depth of, depths of his love for us, right? It's not like Jesus was, you know, given a, a smack on the hand and told to sit and time out in the corner, you know, for our sins. No, like this, this was pretty gruesome to the point, listen, to the point that everything that we read last week or the week before, sorry, of where Jesus is being scourged, right? He's, he's getting the lashes that a majority of people didn't even survive that, right? And if they did survive that, well, then yes, then they would have to carry their cross up the hill to Golgotha, and there they would be crucified. And it was an excruciating and painful death. It's it probably the worst way you could die. We'll talk about that um, a little bit more in depth as we get through this. So we're at this point now. The, the scourging has happened. The, 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 the trial that wasn't truly fair has happened. It happened in the middle of the night. Uh, led into the morning. They couldn't find anything wrong with what Jesus had done. The one thing that they could crucify him for is what? What did they say? What was, what was the accusation against him? Blasphemy, right? The, the claiming that he is the Son of God, which is ironic, right? Because he actually is the Son of God. Everything that they accuse him of, everything that they mock him of, right? Here at the end of verse 38, they put a sign over him as he's hanging on the cross, inscribed and it says in three different languages this is the king of the jews why did they do that to mock him to make fun of him pretty ironic right because they were as they mock him they're proclaiming the truth because he is the king of the jews and as we find out further through scripture he's not only the king of the jews but he's the king of the jews and the gentiles he's the king of kings and so in their mockery in their accusations what they're actually doing without knowing because they're blind is that they're actually proclaiming the truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the King of the Jews. And so it says in verse 26, as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So Cyrene, it's, it's a Roman city that was in North Africa, that's what we know now as the nation of uh, Libya. And Simon was visiting because obviously this was the Passover. So he made the pilgrimage to his native land. We know this as we started you know, a few chapters ago when, when the Passover started, that many different pilgrims, they came back to their homeland to partake in the Passover. And so Simon is, is one of those. right? He came from a faraway place. And so he's just a bystander. So understand this. When somebody was to be crucified, they received the cross beam of the cross. So you've got you know, the, the, what's that, the vertical, and then you've got the horizontal. Well, the horizontal was strapped to them. That is what they had to carry. The vertical was already up on the mountain. It was already placed in the ground. It was already up there. And so they had to carry the crossbeam. And Jesus is at this point right now where he's carrying that crossbeam. And that crossbeam is, is really heavy. It weighs about roughly anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. Now, that alone is hard, right? That alone is hard. But this is, again, after going through the flogging and the scourging, where a majority of people would die just in that. Jesus didn't die through the scourging, so he had to carry his cross, the beam to it. So Simon is standing there. He's watching. 
This was always a public spectacle. Anytime that somebody was, was put to death, it was a public spectacle, right? It wasn't a matter of, you know, doing it behind closed doors. It was so everyone could see. I think it was to bring shame. It was to uh, bring a message, you know, like obviously, don't be a criminal and you won't be put on the cross, right? That's what happens to the two next to Jesus. They're criminals. They're an example. But ultimately what we see is it's, it's shameful and it's humiliation. So Jesus has gone through the scourging, right? He has open wounds. You've got a, a beam on, of the cross that, you know, it hasn't been sanded down. So I'm sure it's got, you know, a bunch of wood and spikes and um, splinters. Thank you. That's what I was thinking of. It's, it's cutting through your skin. You're already skin that's already open. But Jesus gets to a point where he physically can't carry it anymore. And so what the Romans do is they look out into the crowd and they just randomly pick a guy. Could you imagine that? So Simon's there, not knowing really what's happening. He probably has no idea even who Jesus is at this point. And they choose Simon and they take him out of the crowd for him to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way up to um, the top of the hill. Imagine that. Imagine as, you know, just being this bystander and then you have to take this cross. You have no idea what's happening. And so again, the, the customary thing for these condemned men was to carry these crossbars to the place of execution. Jesus is already tired, unable to do so. And um, Simon takes up his cross. It's interesting because Jesus tells us in the Gospels, as we read in Luke 9, that we as followers of him should do the same. Right? But we're not taking up Jesus' cross. Whose cross are we taking up? Whose cross? Yours. Your own. I'll take mine. You take yours. Right? Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, right? if you consider yourself a Christian, a born-again believer, a follower of Jesus, he says then let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So what does that mean? That I have to go find some type of 75-pound crossbar and just carry that everywhere with me? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. No, it doesn't. We know that's not what that means. What was the cross a symbol of? What, what was the purpose of the cross? What, what, what did it do? Did it make for cool tattoos? Was that the purpose? For cool necklaces? To put up on your, your mantle, your wall? No, it's, it's, it's design purpose was to execute, to kill, right? And so when Jesus says this, as, as he takes up his cross and he dies in a literal sense, he tells us as followers of him that we should do the same, that we follow him in the same, that we die, not in the physical sense, but that we die to ourselves, right? There's a spiritual component and aspect to this. Again, if anyone desires to come after Jesus, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Because do you know what the very opposite of taking up your cross is? Not it up. <laughs> exactly. Is <laughs> pride. Is pride. And do we, do we fully understand, do we fully know as humans how destructive pride is? It's the fall of man. Pride is what has put us in this position. Pride is what, what destroys families. It destroys careers, it destroys churches, it has destroyed, you know, in a sense, mankind, it has brought destruction, but Jesus has, has come to change that, right, through the cross, to, to, to reverse that, and so he says, take up your cross, Simon does this in a literal sense, he doesn't take up his cross, but he takes up Jesus' cross, it says, as they're doing that, a great multitude of people follow Jesus, and women who also mourned and lamented 
him. So you've got this crowd. Again, this was always a public spectacle. Um, it was always intended to be that way, to bring shame, to bring humiliation, and to be an example. But we have these women who are following behind him and they're crying. They're mourning. They're lamenting. They're weeping. And you know what Jesus does? He stops. He turns around. He says to them in verse 28, he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? So you're, you're, you're one of these women, right? You're on the side. You hear this transaction going. I could only imagine, um, you know, I, I believe that the soldiers allowed this moment to happen, to just pause, for Jesus to turn around. I don't know how loud he said this but he says it. They hear it. Luke knows it. He writes it. He heard it. So in a hushed voice, he says these things, and you're like, what? Jesus, come again? What, what did you just say? What about the green woods and the dry woods? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? Why can't we mourn for you? Why do you want us to mourn for ourselves? The, there is so much in this four verses that Jesus gets out on his way to Calvary. So much. A lot of, it, a lot of prophecy, which we'll, we'll, we'll dig into right here. So, but what I want to do as we go through verses 28 through 31 is to not take them in that order, but to do it in reverse order and, and study it that way. So we're going to start in verse 31. We'll go to verse 30, 29, and then 28. Okay? So when he says, For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Have you guys ever tried to start a fire with something that is alive or uh, wet? Right? To, t to take a live tree, to take wood that is, you know, essentially still alive from a tree and try to start a fire, is that easier to do or then something from that is dead and already dried out? It's, hard. it's harder, right? So th this is the idea that Jesus is getting in our heads, okay? If you want to start a fire, it's much easier to use the dry kindling than it is the stuff that's alive, the stuff that, the, the greenery. That stuff doesn't burn really well. But the greenery is alive. It's good. You know, the dry stuff is, is dead. It's typically bad. And so here, the implied picture is, is of judgment by fire. Oftentimes, fire was a representation of, of judgment as we read through Scripture. And so green wood is harder to burn, which is a symbol of an innocent being put through judgment. Here's an innocent man in Jesus Christ being put through judgment. Dry wood is a picture of the guilty burning easily, and quickly. So essentially Jesus says this, if Jesus who is innocent can face this kind of judgment, what will happen when the guilty Jerusalem faces judgment? Don't you think it's going to be much worse? So Jesus is warning and he says in verse 30, they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is speaking of a future time of judgment for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is due what is due to them, what they've deserved and what they have earned through their, their sin, through their unrepentance. And so this, this fulfills a prophecy in two ways. These mountains to fall on us and the, the hills to cover us. He's speaking of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, we've, we've discussed this. Remember how they were so into their temple and they spent like over 100, 100 years building it and upfitting it and then it, it's going to get destroyed. 
right? Jerusalem's going to get destroyed in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus is crucified. So he's speaking of that fulfillment of prophecy, but he's also speaking of a greater, further prophecy, which comes with the Great Tribulation, when basically all hell is going to break loose, okay? In Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, John records the people of the world crying out. He says, They cried to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Unfortunately, but fortunately, because God is fair, those who are due the consequences of their sin will be judged and receive those consequences. That's essentially it. I know, like, again, we, we get hung up, and we talked about this a few weeks ago about, you know, I thought God was loving. Isn't he kind and gentle? He is, which is why we get this, the, the history of Jesus coming on the cross and dying for us. If there is, there is no greater show of love, that's who God is. But remember, we talked about God is also just. So if you reject the love, this act that, that God has given through his only son, Jesus Christ, well, then you don't receive that great transaction of salvation, of forgiveness of sins. And so then you are due what is due to you because of your sins. And so he says, you know, in that time of judgment, there's going to be people who wish, you know, they could hide from it. But you can't. You will always be found out and you will always receive what is due to you. So he says in verse 29, he says, For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Now, obviously, children are good, right? You being one of them. Wouldn't you agree with that? Children are good. They're, I'm me speaking as a former child. Like, I, it's, children are good. They're a blessing. God says in his word that they're a blessing. The very first, one of the very first commandments that he gave Adam and Eve was to, to be fruitful and to multiply. Right? They're a blessing to the Lord, but what he's saying here is because of these coming judgments, which are rightfully due for Jerusalem, there will be a day when people wish they did not have children so that they didn't have to go and live through these difficult times. Right? Again, for indeed the days are coming when they'll say, blessed are the barren. I mean, you're so blessed because why is it easier if you don't have kids? Well, you don't have that extra responsibility. You don't have that extra, you know, love. You know, always worrying about, you know, what's going to happen to my kids. And so people are going to be saying, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nurse. And so in verse 28, where he starts this whole section, he says to the daughters of Jerusalem, he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Because of everything that we have just found out, that there is a coming destruction to Jerusalem, right? They're going to receive the wages of their sin, which is death. So essentially what he's saying is don't weep for me, weep for those who reject me. So these women, they're following by, they're, they're feeling sorry for Jesus, they're lamenting. You know, he's, he's about to die a horrible death that he doesn't deserve, yet Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He has planned exactly what he's doing. He wants to do this. It's his choice to do this. It has been God's plan since the foundation of the world, or since we saw in you know, Genesis chapter 3. It's been his plan. It's been his choice to be the sacrifice for our sins. So he says, don't weep for me. This is what I want. This is what you need. He says, you, you need to be weeping for those who reject what I'm offering. Those are the ones you need to weep for. So in verse 32, it says, There was also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, 
There they crucified him, and the criminals on the right hand and the other on the left. So they make their way to a place called Calvary. The name of our church is Calvary Chapel. Clayton, the name of our youth is Calvary Youth. Um, you guys even know what the word Calvary means? No. No? Good. That's what we'll find out here. So Luke, a lot of, a lot of the Gospels, we use the Aramaic term Golgotha. You might have heard of that term before. Um, it, I don't need your commentary. Uh, it's an Aramaic term. It means skull. And usually what it was, is it's a place called the skull. It looked like a skull. Um, but really the term evokes, you know, just death. You know, we see this with Jesus being crucified upon that. And the New King James Version doesn't use Golgotha. Luke uses Calvary, which is the same word, but it's the Latin word for skull. So we have a really cool youth name. It means skull youth, right? <laughs> or uh, skull chapel Clayton, I guess is how you'd want to want to put it. Um, so yeah, it means skull. So that he brings them up to, they, they, they make their way up to Calvary. There's two others that are with him to be crucified. Now the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, it was, it was prophesied thousands of years before Jesus even came on the scene and was crucified. This is even way before, plenty of years way before like crucifixion was even invented, right? This would be like Paul talking about cars, the internet, right? Back, you know, 2,000 years ago, writing about the internet. And people would be like, at that time, they'd be like, what do you, what's the internet? You know, what, what's, uh, what does that mean? You know, for us, now it's come to pass, we understand what it means. For them, David, in Psalm chapter 22, he, he prophesied of crucifixion, again, before it was even invented, before it was even a thing. In Proverbs 22, 16, he says, they pierce my hands and my feet. This was unknown in his time. But through the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is writing these things, even though he may not fully comprehend what they mean, but he's giving us an understanding of what's to come. All these prophecies are, are coming now to pass through the Messiah and Jesus Christ. And so in 800 BC, around 800 BC, is when the Persians actually invented crucifixion. We oftentimes want to attribute it to the Romans, but it's the Romans who went on and perfected it. So the, the, the Persians came up with the idea, and then the Romans came back around, and they're like, hey, we can do this better or worse, however you want to look at it. We can make this worse. We, we can make this complete torture that it's, it's so awful and it's so degrading that even like polite, nice, kind Romans wouldn't even speak of it in public. And so you've got this combination of the scourging that's happening, you know, for the criminals. Jesus being one of them, even though he's not a criminal. But he's being beaten like a criminal. you got the combination of scourging and the crucifixion. It made the death on the cross especially brutal. And I'm going to read this through you, what transpires through all this. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging. Then the clotting blood was ripped open again when the clothes were torn off before the crucifixion. The victim was thrown on the ground to fix his hands to the crossbeam, and the wounds on the back were again to be were, were torn open and contaminated with dirt. As he hung on the cross with each breath, the painful wounds on the back scraped against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. Then there were nails that were driven through the wrist. It severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. 
and often gave the victim a claw-like grip in their hands. Beyond the excruciating pain, the major effect of crucifixion was to inhibit normal breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and the shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hindered exhalation. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, which hindered breathing even further. So to get a good breath, what the victim would have to do because his, his feet are nailed to the cross and his arms are nailed to the cross is that they would have to uh, push against the feet, flex the elbows, pulling the shoulders so they could just get a simple breath. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced searing pain and flexing of the elbows, twisted the hands hanging on the cross, lifting the body for a breath, also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get just one simple proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Again, this was, they had perfected, for the lack of a better word, but to understand this and what it is, they had perfected how to torture someone to death, to be excruciating, be painful. You guys can see the visual of it if you ever watch The Passion of the Christ. Now, what would happen to his insects, they would come upon, they would burrow in the, in the eyes or the wounds, the ears, the nose. Uh, birds would prey and tear at, at the wounds. It was, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by animals. Again, this was excruciating for many, many, many reasons, and it brought forth death in different ways. Sometimes there was acute shock from blood loss, um, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, because essentially, you know, again, you're doing all that work just for a breath. And do you know what they would do if, like, you took too long to survive? Is they would come around and they would do what? They would break your legs. Good job. They would break your legs right here, okay? They would break your legs so that you could no longer, with a broken leg, push yourself up to breathe. So essentially, over, you know, a few minutes after you have broken legs, you were soon unable to breathe. Uh, there was dehydration, heart attack, congestive heart failure different ways of dying. But again, the point being is that it was excruciating. It was horrific. How bad, is, how bad was crucifixion? Do you know where we get our English word excruciating from? From the Roman word out of the cross. That's where we get our word excruciating. Someone said, consider how heinous sin must be in the sight of God when it requires such a sacrifice. Do we see that? Do we see that transaction taking place? Do we see how wicked our sin is? Or do we just kind of deceive ourselves and saying, eh, it's just a mistake. It's not a good definition of sin. No, we have disobeyed a righteous God. We, we have essentially spat in His face, rejected Him, mocked Him. But Jesus in our place has gone through this He's, he goes through all of this and death in it of itself because of how heinous our sin is, but ultimately because he loves us. He doesn't want this to happen to you, so he does it for us. And so you've got you know, not just Jesus, but you've got two other criminals that are with him, one on the left, one on the right. At some point, we'll, we'll talk about them more in depth. But that also fulfills another prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9. It says they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus, who is not wicked, who is perfect and righteous, is there being up in the middle of two criminals, 
to wicked people. So in verse 34, Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, and they divided his garments and cast lots. Those are the first of the seven last words or phrases that Jesus says upon the cross. The first set. And he talks about forgiveness. He pleads to the Father on their behalf. He's the mediator between the sinner and God the Father. And he, and he, and he pleads with them. He says, forgive them. He says they don't know what they do. Talk about forgiveness, right? Before they have even come to Jesus, before they've even recognized their fault and their sin, before they even you know, come to Jesus and say, hey, we were wrong. You were right. Could you forgive us? He says it. He initiates. That's, that's who Jesus is. He intercedes for the forgiveness of his enemies who are guilty of this gross, wicked act. And that begs and puts into question for us who have received the forgiveness of Christ, how could we ever withhold forgiveness from those who have wronged us, which will never, ever be in the same light as the way that we have wronged Christ or the way that those who were there in the moment have wronged Christ. Again, if we are followers of Jesus, what do we have to do? We have to take up our cross, right? Part of taking up our cross and dying is this act of forgiveness. But oftentimes I see throughout life, and I'm one of them, is that many Christians, this is one thing that they struggle with the most, is showing grace and forgiveness to others. Now, we're very good at it when it's, you know, it suits us and it fits us, you know, and, it, and it's not that bad. We're, we're pretty good at showing forgiveness, but when it comes down to it and you live life and you go through some stuff, are, are we able to truly forgive a brother or a sister the way that Christ has forgiven his enemies? And so what they're doing as he's saying this, as he's hanging, is that they're dividing his garments, it says in verse 34 they divide his garments and they cast lots basically they're they're gambling for his possessions jesus is stripped of everything he has nothing like probably not even any clothes on and here he is hanging on the cross being mocked being shamed being humiliated he's saying father forgive them they're they're casting lots they're they're you know basically hey let's let's draw the straw Whoever gets the short straw gets his clothes. You can sell it. You can keep it. You can, whatever you want to do to it, it's, it's a matter of selfishness to this, that they wanted to keep it and probably sell it. But again, here Jesus is stripped of everything. We're talking about the king of kings. We're talking about the guy who spoke things into existence, everything that we see. Every material possession, every, every single thing that we see, Jesus leaves this earth with none of it because ultimately none of it matters and what does matter is us right so he he rids of everything he comes poorly right how was he born was he born in the 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 hilton the marriott in like the really nice hotel or was he born in a manger with the animals he, he came like that he came not as a, as a conquering king in this moment but he comes as a suffering servant Right? He says, I don't come to, to be served, but to serve. We see that all throughout his life. That's who Jesus is. And he leaves this life as a servant with nothing, ultimately to bring us back to God, because that's what was most important. So in verse 35, let's wrap this up. 
And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This week started way different. Six, seven days prior to this, the, the entire week, it was compl- the, the script was completely different. He comes in riding on a donkey, and what are they doing? They get the palms, they start waving them, they start singing Hosanna, Hosanna, right? They're speaking of him. Do you know what Hosanna means? It means save now. This was their king that they were, this was the Messiah. But again, they, they, most of them misunderstood and they, they thought Jesus was coming to save them from the Roman rule. But no, that wasn't Jesus' purpose. Jesus came to save them from their sin. And so here they are, they're, mon- they're mocking him, they're taunting him. They're saying, save yourself. You've saved other people. You brought Lazarus back from the dead. You did this to the cripple. You saved so many people. You healed them. You did that. What, you can't save yourself now? Are you not who you, sa- who you said you are? But here's the irony, irony in all of it. They want him to prove that he is the king of kings by saving himself, when in actuality, Jesus needs to stay on the cross so that he can save them. If he were to save himself, if he were to take himself off the cross, well then we are all still dead in our sins and our iniquity. But yet, he stays upon the cross. Why? Not to save himself, but to save us. They shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, and now they're taunting him, saying, if you are the king of kings, if you're the king of the Jews, then... Again, you can save yourself. This is another prophecy to come in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If he got off the cross, we would still be dead in our sins. We would pay the price for our iniquity. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, For he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So they mock him, saying, Get off the cross and save yourself. Jesus doesn't say anything, but he stays on the cross so he can save people that mock him. And verse 38 says, An inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, Hebrew, saying, This is the king of the Jews. Now the Jews, they objected to this. We find that out in John chapter 19. They did not want this written above Jesus's head. They thought it was false. They didn't believe that he was the king of the Jews, but they also thought it was demeaning because here's the Romans. They had the power to humiliate and torture, and they're making fun of the king of the Jews and all the Jews basically saying that here's your king that can't even save himself. But Pilate says in John chapter 19, verse 22, he says, What I have written, I have written. So again, the the irony in all of this, we see this all throughout. The irony is here, this this placard is, is intended to state Jesus' crime. Not only his crime, but the mockery. But in reality, it proclaims his true title. So what they proclaim as his, the accusation or the crime is actually his true title. He is the king of Jews. In their mockery, they actually proclaim the truth. In their accusation, they actually proclaim the truth, accusing him, again, 
of being the king of the Jews because Jesus is the king of the Jews. And what I'm so thankful for is because there's many of us who are not Jewish is that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews but king of the Gentiles. That Jesus is no respecter of persons. He says it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. He came for every single person. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was for all. But salvation is readily available for all, but not everyone chooses it. Not everyone chooses to believe and put their trust in this king. And so again, what happens is you will have to face the consequences for your sin because God is a righteous and just God.